We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the Truth Here's Newcastle United podcast. Really quick note from me, Alex Hurst, before I leave you with Norman Riley's chat to both Miguel Delaney of The Independence and Felix Jenkinson of Amnesty International to say that we were contacted by uh, many, many listeners over the past week or so from the, the two podcasts we've done on the takeover so far. A lot of really kind words, which we are, are massively grateful for, and some, you know, some constructive criticism as well, which is fine and, and good to receive. And uh, we did promise that we would allow the people who have an issue with this takeover to put forward their side of the story. Um, you all heard Norman on the last podcast, or you mostly will have heard him on the last podcast with me and my Michael Martin, while we talked through the idea of the media and Newcastle United fans. Uh, he has interviewed both lads uh, for you all today. I know no one would do this, but if, if there's any disagreements or any issues uh, with either of them, uh, just remember that they did this of their own free will. No one gets paid for this. Uh, they they happily came and spoke to us um, kind of on your behalf so that you could listen to the arguments you know, doesn't mean everyone has to agree. It doesn't mean that the True Faith podcast agrees or disagrees with them. But I would absolutely hate it if anyone was, you know, a dickhead, basically, towards either of them for coming and doing this. Because uh, even though, I, for example, with Miguel, uh, who I like very much as a bloke, um, I, you know, vastly disagree with him on the Newcastle United takeover. Uh, he thinks it shouldn't go ahead and has written about as such. I'm desperate for it to go ahead. Uh, I, I can't fault him. Uh, and how he's behaved, how he's spoken about the football club, its history, um, and the fact that he spent time giving us this uh, this interview for this podcast says a lot about him, says a lot about Felix. Um, so disagreements absolutely champion. Don't be a bellend uh, and, and abuse anyone. The lads certainly don't need me to, to um, defend them or talk on their behalf. They haven't asked me to do this, but I just would hate for anyone to... to to be abused for anything that they said in the podcast because it's no good. But you all know that anyway. Um, keep it with true faith next week. Hopeful of an announcement. We're going to have some some great big podcasts with lots of input on on the future, the beautiful future of Newcastle United. You know that we hope will happen. Um, so I'll stop talking now. Over two minutes. I meant to talk for thirty seconds. Here's Norman and Miguel. I'm Norman Rayleigh, and I'm delighted to be joined by Miguel Delaney. Miguel is Chief Football Writer at the Independent and has very recently put out a few tweets on the prospect of Newcastle being bought out by a consortium from which the majority of the finance will come from the Saudi Arabian government's public investment fund. Those tweets and uh, your article, Miguel, generated, I think it'd be fair to say, a heated reaction. So TF thought it'd be good to chat with you and um, to your credit, you've done so. Um, 
thank you very much, mate. And uh, how are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, adapting, I'd say, to uh, to lockdown. Uh, well, and it's interesting, even, even beyond even beyond this Newcastle story, the, the football news cycle has actually been relentless because of all the stuff about um, getting back to playing football, about issues like furloughing staff. Uh, so it's been quite weird in that sense. I expected it to be a lot quieter, but but it hasn't been. No, who, who needs football when you can just talk about football? Um, football news, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I'll tell you what, mate. We'll we'll get uh, we'll get stuck into it. Then the first question: um, Do you think the deal will go through? Yeah, my hunch. Yeah, my my gut is. I mean, obviously, at the time we're recording, uh, it's very close. It just has has to be ratified by the Premier League. Uh, obviously, what they have to look at now is is putting all the paperwork and, and all the connections through the owners and directors' tests. But of course, that raises the bigger question uh, that we'll get into now over whether the owners and directors' tests is suitable and what it says about all this if the deal does go through. True enough. Um, well, well, we'll move on to the uh, obviously the a couple of the tweets that have caused uh, such such forewarned and heated debate. As I say, um, I think the main one, you know, you said uh, I'm quoting I'm quoting directly here. It's uh, if there is Saudi involvement, a great club with a great tradition and community spirit would specifically be used as image enhancement slash networking from issues like human rights abuses slash Yemen slash the murder of Khashoggi. It will be lamentable and bears a lot of scrutiny. Um, I don't think anyone disputes that the Saudi government carries out actions that are, are morally reprehensible. Um, however, in terms of fans who support the club, that's part of the social fabric of the region uh, all their lives. So families have supported the club for generations whose descendants will go on to support the club. Do you think it's up to them to hold the actions of the, the Saudi government or indeed any government organisation that purchases a football club up for scrutiny? It's not up to them, and to be fair, that's why I think, despite some of the backlash, I have made a point of not or not attacking fans. Although, to be honest, I have had a lot of backlash, and I think some of that does warrant calling out. But, but generally, no, I don't think it does call on fans, and I do absolutely sympathise with fans in this year because this, this is when you really break it down, it's a real moral dilemma. I think, as the second captain's podcast the other day, it is a real uh, frying pan into fire situation. Mike Ashley was a terrible owner. Uh, it's. It was. An, I mean, I, I did this in a piece last August. It's an indictment of English football that a situation allowed where someone someone that doesn't have the primary interest of the club at heart is allowed on a club in the first place, and it begs you huge questions of how we own clubs or how ownership structures are, are constructed in this country. But then that equally applies to Saudi Arabia because the primary interest here is not Newcastle. That's all a byproduct for something that is very nakedly political. And I mean, as you mentioned, all the fans. And what it means to them, but that's precisely why this is important. Um, I mean, re- because clubs are ultimately social institutions. They're representations of the community, and in many towns, many cities across across Britain, they're often the only social hub left. I and mean, we did a piece last May in, in, related to the potential death of the seventy-two due to, due to changes in the game, which obviously become a much more prominent issue with, with coronavirus and economic, economic threat to so many clubs. And like I was talking to people in government who say. Or, or more so in kind of local authorities, they, they actually lean on football clubs because they are the only social hub left. Everything else is gone. They're often the only thing holding clubs together. So they're, they're a hugely important place in society. And I think it's a disgrace that that noble concept could be bought up and distorted into something like this, which would, which would really just be an instrument of foreign policy for one of the most criticised states on earth. I mean, I've I've done the piece this morning. Uh, like it was, it was over a week in the making. We, we basically spoke 
to every academic and expert on the area um, on Saudi Arabia, and, and they're, they're, they're quite blunt about this. This was all, I mean, the, the word they all use is sports washing, and that's not just about image cleansing, that's also about forging connections, uh, integrating yourself into the West, so you're so, so basically the message is these are good people to do business with, but 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 that's all to deflect from what is happening in their in their country, and it, and this again is one of the three most criticised countries on earth, and and what and what this is about is the political use of the club and and its fans, and that's why it's so insidious and really so disturbing, and I it, it, I think it greatly saddens me that Newcastle fans and the club could be used in that way. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, all, all very valid points. Um, I think, I think, from a fan's perspective, I think the difficulty is, and, and what a lot of the reaction um, has been, is, is that obviously, I think a lot of fans take any sort of um, holding the club to account as a, as a criticism of them directly. So I suppose, from my perspective, it's, you know, it is, a, it, it can be a moral dilemma for many people, but you know. Newcastle fans will go and support that team, and, and I suppose you know, in terms of sports washing, we, you know, people are aware of what you know governments do. People are aware of what the Saudi government do, especially now. I mean, a lot of people who weren't quite aware will, will certainly be more aware now. But you know, if people are aware of it happening, um, they can still, I suppose, go to matches and you know su- support that side, and I guess support the you know the team, not the regime. And if people are actually aware of it, how how does the whole sports washing concept work if the fans you know are off sort of thoroughly aware of what's actually going on and they're not they're not expecting support for a regime so to speak they're, they're just still supporting that club well, i mean just to answer the first point there i mean it, it is a view i actually sympathize with a lot and i've said this about manchester city and believe me i've had a lot of uh have <laughs> to put this exchanges with Manchester City fans over the last two years, particularly given our coverage over the treble and what the club is. We, we did this piece on the eve of the season, uh, we, which again is essentially a sports-watching exercise for Abu Dhabi, who, let's not forget, are major allies of Saudi Arabia and have, have just run a war in Yemen with them, described as basically by all experts as the greatest humanitarian disaster on the planet. So that's just one other angle to why this deal should not go through, because the idea of having... Uh, the, the Middle Eastern power block setting up a power base in English football like that is re- it provokes a lot of uncomfortable questions. But in saying all that, the view I've always had with City fans is I actually I completely sympathise the fact that no matter who buys your club, and, and, and I know this is a debate that's gone on with Newcastle fans as well about how to protest Ashley in the first place and, and, and the issue of boycotting. It's not just as simple as making you know, a stark decision, well, I'm not going to go or, or anything like that. Because we know that connections to these clubs are built up over decades. There's like a, there's, a, there's a real internalized psychological link that's that's just almost impossible to break. Um, so and so so in that case, I mean, I, I would feel personally that the most understandable re- re- response to this is, I suppose, happiness that Ashley is gone, and yet a level of discomfort with who these new owners are. I think, I, I think that's completely fair. And it's also, and I know so, some Newcastle fans found this tweet uh, inflammatory, was one word put to me. But I, I, I think, and I, I, this, I, this is a very sincere opinion, I think it, it's, the, it's the best display of the power they actually have in this, which is that, that uh, a banner of Jamal Khashoggi we put up. Because, uh, again, the, the whole reason they're, they're buying the club, again, as we, it's, it's sports watching, but that is, and 
almost every expert will attest to this in the area. That's that's something that's been ramped up since the death of Khashoggi because of the huge international backlash. But let's not forget, this, this, after that, there was a period where they they, they went through eight months of um, without having an ambassador in, in Washington, D.C. And it was essentially, according to uh, some of the experts I quote in today's piece, uh, like uh, Dr. Coates Ulrichson, who's, who's an expert in the area, it was essentially you know, Abu Dhabi uh, making representations on, on their behalf in Washington. Uh, so this all ramped up after Khashoggi. And so the entire point of this is to try and ultimately soften the image of the state after something, a crime as massive as that. Uh, and, and of course, it goes even more direct than this because um, the, uh, if the deal goes through, which we expect it will, 80% of the club will be owned by the Public Investment Fund. The Public Investment Fund is chaired by uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, and the US Senate has passed a resolution holding him responsible for the murder of Khashoggi. So I mean, it, 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 it's all about this. It's all about the political use of fans and also the political use of the, the emotional power of fans. I mean, as we can already see, I, I know this is just a minority and they don't represent the fan base, but it is there and they are quite high in number. There's so many fans on, on, on Twitter and social media who essentially go, going to bat for the regime and are arguing the toss about, about Saudi human rights abuses. This is sports washing in effect. So the way fans can really still support their team but also show agency in this and undermine the very sinister reasons the club has been bought is essentially to, to, to put up a banner of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, that, that, that would horrify the Saudi owner. Suddenly, this big power play of theirs, which is the purchase of a club like Newcastle following on from, from Abu Dhabi's purchase of Manchester City, or Sheikh Mansour's, if you want to get into the whole um, the kind of fairly irrelevant uh, debate about the power structures there. Um, but, but, but this is why they bought it, and it would, be, it would instantly undermine all that. And it'd be such, it would be such a powerful display. And, and also, I think, a really reassuring and noble illustration of fan power at a time, particularly in Newcastle, when fans have never felt more powerless. Because this isn't trying to force Ashley out, which is obviously such an issue. This is something where you can have direct agency. And, and I, I would consider it similar to... There was, like, there was a very interesting case with, with the Leon fans when... Um, their games were moved for, for Chinese television. So what, what the fans responded was basically a massive TIFO of the Taiwanese flag as a political statement, which was beamed live. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what they did in China. You'd have to assume they, uh, they blurred the image of the flag. Uh, or, or, or similar to when Bayern Munich started, up, started business deals with Qatar and, and their fans protested, something that happens a lot in Germany. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they've got the advantage of the, you know, 51% of the club being owned by the fans, whereas obviously I think any Newcastle fans and, you know, I, I get I, I get what you're saying, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, any Newcastle fans who, who took a flag such as that in the stadium would be likely to be banned straight away. And obviously that would, you know, reinforce the point that that you're trying to make and obviously other people are trying to make in terms of free speech, etc. Um, with regards to a regime that suppresses it. Uh, however, I suppose I will have to, to kind of, ask you this if if that's something that the fans could do in that case you know let's think of of players managers coaches you know for a start any kind of player or manager signing on the dotted line for for this particular regime are they not held up to the same kind of i suppose levels of moral scrutiny if not more than the fans themselves and also in terms of journalists you know let's see a newcastle press conference for example you know will we see journalists wearing jamal khashoggi t-shirts you know that this i guess it's not, it, it's not a bad idea it's i think it should be done and to be fair i wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be demanding this of the fans. I'm just saying it's a suggestion that I think would be very powerful. 
Uh, I, I, I wouldn't expect, as you say, there's, there's all sorts of complications to it. Uh, but, but I do think it could be a powerful gesture. I, I think the one about players and managers is interesting because it's, it's something that's come up with, with City as well. I suppose this is where there is a bit of a dividing line and where this conversation does get a bit blurred because then it becomes about, and, and this is something that's come up in my response as well, about the system we live in. Um, and, and, and essentially, like, to, to, to exist in it, we have to abide by structures that we don't agree with. Um, and it, 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 it is a very fair question. And it's that one, ultimately, if, if you play for a club like this, are you in your own way legitimizing the regime? Is it moral to go to a club like this? Um, it's, it's, it's a very hard question to answer, really. Because I, and in that case, I think it's, it's often it's unfair to blame employees in a situation like this. Uh, but then I suppose that question is a bit co- more complicated when it's someone making the choice to go there, especially if, as is expected in, the, in this, uh, it's for massive amounts of money, which is which is what many fans hope. Well, yeah, I mean, but, and I guess I suppose it's. I think it's. I think this is the thing. You know, I think a lot of fans obviously feel that they're being held up um, in a different light to to let's say people employed by the club, i.e., as I say, players, coaches, etc., and also journalists. I mean, obviously, Kashogi. You know, he he was in the same industry as you, and yeah. I suppose you could look at it like this: any, you know, if fans are are kind of expected to a certain extent to to protest it, to let's say take a flag in the stadium, you know, why why would journalists not in in a as a form of solidarity not just refuse to report on the club, you know, to, well, to refuse to engage? Would that not? It, I'm, I know it sounds like I'm engaging in what about here, but I suppose I'm just putting. Yeah. I'll to you because obviously that's you know these are the kind of concerns that have been raised amongst yeah. fans. Well, funnily enough, actually, that, first the one thing I would say is in principle I don't think uh, and I think this would be an ethical consideration of, of the profession really. I don't think journalists should ever boycott anything because the job, because especially in a case like this, when part of it is about putting out an image, so that image needs to be challenged. But what I would say, and I think where you're perfectly right, the journalists shouldn't shouldn't report this case like like as if they're a normal football club and the exact same applies to Man City and and to be honest and I, I would very much include myself in this uh, I would say for a long time I failed at the reporting of Man City and there were, there were, there were we basically just treated like a normal club and you know we talked about all the great football all the rest of it and like in the case of Man City there were two things that really opened my eyes and kind of made and really pushed me into what I wrote last summer when they won the, tre- the domestic treble Um one was an article by Nick McGeehan, who has previously worked for Human Rights Watch and is still a human rights activist for Fair Square, uh, in which he, it was in December 2017 when he did a big piece about what Abu Dhabi actually are, and this isn't just some kind of vanity project. And then, of course, just over a year later, when Football Leaks came out, and it really painted exactly what the powers in Manchester City were, uh, we're doing in football, and there, there, there is that quote. It, 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 I think it's such a telltale quote about the whole thing. Uh, it's from Simon Pearce, who is uh, a high up official at Manchester City, but is also one of MBZ, who is essentially he was the uh, ruler of Abu Dhabi. Essentially, is one of his most trusted advisors, and it was basically in an e- in an email about I, th- I think. I can't remember the exact details of the quote, but it was something about, obviously, uh, the, the dates of uh, some sort of deal or something. Uh, but his quote was, we can do whatever we want. 
Um, so I, this this was something that really, I suppose, probably opened my eyes. And, I said, and, and it's why we were having this discussion at we- among journalists at Wembley when they destroyed Watford 6-0, won a treble. And it just felt so soulless, the whole thing, because this was, right, e- even within the modern Premier League context, Watford, a wealthy club, wealthier than most European clubs, and they just couldn't compete with this, the most lavishly funded project on earth, who were kind of looking to kind of almost bend football to their will. And it, and it just didn't feel like football. This wasn't normal. And, and again, and, and which ties into the whole question of what they're trying to do and what the purpose of this is. And I remember just thinking that day, like, I'm not going to report this like it's a normal match because it's not. And it's why, like, I mean, I don't think you'll ever find many other FA Cup final reports in history that make references to, to the bombing in, bombing in Yemen. And, and we were discussing, or sorry, the, the war in Yemen. But um, we, we were discussing afterwards among ourselves, I mean, Given what they're trying, what Abu Dhabi is trying to do with the club, and now the same will apply with Saudi Arabia and Newcastle, should we just allow them to spread that message and challenge? This is something that should regularly come up in press conferences. It should be mentioned all the time. And any time the club is reported on, even if we do have to go through the usual rigmarole of reporting on the team and their wins, it should at the very least be clarified what this is. Because in Ollie Holt did make a great point in his, um, what was an excellent column by him on Sunday, where he said... Like with City, this is this is the kind of the problem of the beautiful football. It creates the subliminal link to the state, and even subconsciously softens the image of the state, which is why journalists shouldn't treat shouldn't treat this like a normal football team. Right. So I mean, well, that, that's very interesting that you say that. And again, I think um, you know it, it kind of addresses if, as I say, if journalists are going to. Let's see. I will see. Have, have a go at fans. Let's see. Then I guess, you know, they've got to kind of get their own backyard and order first. Um, so it would be interesting to see who plays out next season, whether or not, obviously, any journalists are just kind of redirect with um, with people employed by the club about uh, who, who they're working for. That let, Let's see if that happens. Um, and it kind of does tie into the next couple of questions. You've obviously had a bit of... Um, a bit of comeback about the fact that you work for the Independent and there's a 30% ownership by um, Sultan Mohammed uh, Abdul Jadiel, um, a Saudi businessman. Um, and obviously, uh, I guess the other thing as well is, you know, an article that you wrote about the potential of the Saudi takeover um, of Man United a couple of years ago. Um, that that wasn't as hard-hitting, I guess, as, as how you've gone in a Newcastle, I suppose. You know, the opinions do change over a couple of years. I'm not going not gonna to mm. speak that. And you, and you just mentioned that as well. Um, but I guess, man, you as well, am I right in thinking they have a commercial partnership with um, Saudi Telecom? And I, I don't recall hearing much kind of scrutiny of that. So, again, that's they, these are just points that have been raised. I'd be interested to hear how we, you know, what your opinions are there. Yeah, um, and, and they're fair questions. Uh, to, the, the one thing I would say in relation to, and, and this has come up a lot, uh, it came up a lot the city thing, and I did a piece about this in February 2018. In that there, there is, obviously... We'd rather clubs didn't do business with the Saudi, the Saudi state at all. But that is kind of the system we live in that we have to kind of, uh, you know, coexist with or coexist in. Uh, and that's, but that's still several levels removed from the PIF owning, chaired by MBS, owning Newcastle as a direct political instrument. And, and the same applies to the structure of the independent it's, it's just not comparable as regards as regards the independent i mean the, the, the greatest relevance here is, is, i mean it's it's editorial independence i mean and like you've got the independence chief football writer myself who's you know essentially criticizing saudi arabia 
at will. Also, the, 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 the paper, or now the website, should I say, has been you know, leading the way on criticism of the Khashoggi case. Rob, Rob, I mean, its, it's coverage in the Middle East is the most respected in the world, let's say. It's mostly true, the work of Robert Fisk. Um, so I just think that's kind of a non-issue. And it, it does, it feels like one of those things where rather than engage with, with the point, which I think is a very, very serious point, and it's a point made, let's be fair, about it's, it's, it's the protection. Or it's, it's a point in the best interest of Newcastle, we could, we could argue. You know, there's, there's so much talk that, oh, you're just jealous of us. You don't, you don't want to see us succeed. That's not the case. This is about what the best interest of a great club are. And it saddens me that a club like that would be used in, in, in this way. And, and that, that's the kind of the fundamental point there. And in relation to the Manchester United thing as well, uh, what, what I would say there is that Manchester United piece, which, which remember leads with the disappearance of Khashoggi, that is mentioned straight up the top. Uh, he, he hadn't yet come out that he'd been murdered yet um, and, and, and dismembered. I mean, I think the, the grotesquery of that crime should be brought up at, at every step. Um, but that was ultimately just laying out because it, it was just a rumour at that point whether the Saudis were interested in Manchester United. So all that was a, was a short factual piece and whether the rumour was true. When, when, when there were similar rumours about Newcastle, I didn't write anything at all. And I certainly didn't go in on the moral stance of it all or what fans should do. So like that, I think that, that's a very unfair accusation to people because it, <laughs> I, went, I went nowhere near as far. And also subsequently that Manchester United piece, I literally described the potential Saudi takeover of Manchester United, you know, one of the three biggest clubs on the planet, along with Barcelona and Real Madrid probably, potentially bought out as a political instrument by one of the three most criticised states in the pla- uh, on the planet. Um, so so I don't think that that's like a, stacks up. And to be fair, I've only kind of, I mean, a few months ago I did say it would be, on Twitter, I haven't written about it yet, it, w- it would be a very bad thing if Saudi Arabia bought Newcastle. But obviously I've only... I've only kind of escalated the scrutiny of this and the discussion about it as the deal gets closer and as it looks like it's on the brink of happening, which is which is perfectly natural. Natural. So that that would be the answer to the supposed difference in coverage of Manchester United. And to be honest, had it happened with Manchester United, it would have been harsher uh, because of the size and power of the club. Although there is actually another angle here, and this this was put to me by again Dr. Coach Ulrichson about this that he almost thinks that. A little bit like what Manchester City with Abu Dhabi. Newcastle and their recent history are the perfect... And this is something worth considering. It's worth giving a lot of thought to. Newcastle are the perfect host organism. Because that's what they would be, a host organism, for a sports-watching project like this. Because it's a fan base that has felt almost a little bit marginalised, particularly in relation to coverage of Mike Ashley, uh, because they're so desperate for some sort of, of saviour. And as we've all, as we've pretty much seen, any alternative to Mike Ashley is essentially praised, even though these are, I, I would say by a million levels, morally worse than Mike Ashley. And that is really saying something, uh, given given all the coverage of you know, how Sports Direct have treated staff. But, but because of all that, it almost means, that it's, again, it's the perfect host organism for, 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 for an operation like this. Because it's, it's a fan base almost desperate for something different and, and willing willing to engage when really they should be engaging with the question of why this is being done in the first place. Which, I mean, I think a lot of people are. Um, you know, obviously, I think we're all very much aware of, you know, the, the Saudi regime and, as you say, what it's done, what it does and what it will continue to do. But I guess, you know, we'll go back to the original point of, of this being our football club and I suppose what I'd 
what I would like to know is, you know, truthfully, would you judge fans who continue to go and watch that team? Would you have a, a negative oh, opinion? No, no. I, I, I absolutely wouldn't judge fans. No, no, I wouldn't judge fans going at all. Same with Manchester City fans. I, t- I totally get this is their team. And there is, I mean, you could also argue there is a little bit of defiance in that sense of kind of the, the owner is never truly the club. Uh, the, the club is an identity unto itself that is really wrapped up in the fans. Owners come and go, the club doesn't. Uh, so almost kind of staying with it is an act of defiance in itself. But what would sadden me is fans basically arguing for the regime, you know, kind of pushing back against against any sort of criticism. And I know that's only been a minor, minority so far, but but it is there. And that, that's what this one, going to the games, absolutely not, because I think it's, it's it's completely understandable, uh, and it's it's absolutely fair for Newcastle fans to be conflicted about this. Uh, but it's it's their club. It's not Saudi Arabia's, and 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 the danger is that Saudi Arabia try and distort it into something that it isn't. Well, I don't think the fans are allowed that to happen. And Miguel, I think that's a very good point to leave it on. Um, we really appreciate you giving your time um, and the fact that you've fronted up. So, so thank you very much and um, all the best here. No problem. Cheers. Uh, I, I'd like to say it was enjoyable chat. Well, enjoyable chatting with you on it, not, not necessarily enjoyable uh, subject of chat. True enough. Thank you. Cheers. Hello, this is the True Faith Podcast. I'm Norman Rayleigh and I'm delighted to be joined by Felix Jenkins, who is Head of Campaigns at Amnesty International. As most of you listening will know, Amnesty this week wrote to the Premier League authorities asking them to pay close attention to the proposed take of Newcastle United by a consortium involving the Saudi government. As listeners hopefully know, True Faith likes to try and speak to people and organisations that comment on the club and Felix has agreed to do just that. Felix, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Um, We'll just get straight into it then. Um, First of all, can you explain to listeners um, the amnesty position on the Saudi regime and, um, if possible, offer a couple of examples of the behaviour in which it engages that has led to amnesty's condemnation? Yes. So um, in terms of the purchase of Newcastle, what we've been saying is that we see Saudi Arabia's interest and involvement in, in buying the club as not being about football, not being about business, but, be, but about uh, trying to improve their reputation internationally. So um, it's a process that we've, we've talked about as being called sports washing. So it's using, uh, using high-profile sports. So that's been uh, bringing sport to Saudi Arabia, which they've been doing a lot of over the last 18 months. Probably the Anthony Joshua fight um, at the end of last year being the most high-profile example of that. And now they're kind of casting their net a little bit wider and the, the acquisition of a very high-profile Premier League team seems to be what they've got their sights um, set on. We know they also made some inquiries at Man United, um, but the price was allegedly allegedly a little bit too high for them. So we've been commenting on this for some time and, and raising awareness of the fact that Saudi is trying to use sport in this way. I'll briefly touch on a couple of the the, the kind of... Br- you know, a couple of minutes probably doesn't isn't enough to mm-hmm. talk about Saudi Arabia when it comes to human rights violations. Um, they're pretty much bottom of the world league uh, when it comes to human rights abuses. Um, but three categories, I suppose, that it's worth talking about. So firstly, the conflict in Yemen. Um, so that's something which the UK government has been helping to fuel. Um, but the Saudi-led coalition has been leading an indiscriminate bombing campaign in the country that has wrecked the infrastructure and has left um, Yemen 
uh, on the brink of, of famine and collapse. Um, they've um, indiscriminately targeted civilian targets throughout the campaign, so schools, hospitals, mosques, and some of your uh, some of your listeners may remember um, very, you know, unfortunately targeted a, a bus full of school children on their way to school, killing over thirty. Um, so the conflict in Yemen is one area of concern for Amnesty. Another very high-profile incident was the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So he's a journalist who was critical of the regime. Um, you know, not someone who has a totally unchecked background, but uh, went into the Istanbul consulate um, and, and was murdered uh, brutally and dismembered um, there. And while he's denied all uh, knowledge and uh, involvement, the CIA and the United Nations have said that a level of accountability will stretch all the way up to Mohammed bin Salman, who will become effectively the de facto owner of Newcastle United. Uh, and then just broadly, sort of, there's a big issue in the, in the kingdom around, you know, there's a, there's a complete lack of civil society. There's no transparency. There's no independent journalism. Dissent or criticism of the, of the royal family and of the crown prince is, is completely not tolerated. Um, so uh, anybody who is caught speaking out um, against them is liable to kind of disappear, face torture, and potentially the death penalty. Uh, and that's the final thing that I'd say is they're a very prolific user of the death penalty. Um, over 180 executions documented by Amnesty last year alone. And their favourite uh, their favorite method is still beheading, um, which is often followed by crucifixion of the corpse. Um, and we've seen that being handed out to uh, in one case, someone who was 10 years old at the time of the crime, 13 at the time of conviction. So some pretty, some pretty significant stuff. And, you know, we, if we were seeing reform as an organization in Saudi Arabia, we would talk about it. Um, it's, not our, it's not our purpose to, to make, um, make a case where there isn't one to be made, but with Saudi there, there really is. Okay, thank you for that. Um, in terms of sports washing, now, the concept of sports washing... What would you foresee that entailing in, let's say, a region like Tyneside if, if the purchase did go through? And I suppose, obviously, you know, we can we can guess at what it might entail and that will bring undoubtedly a lot of economic benefit to the northeast of England, um, which I'm sure you're aware is a, a relatively economically deprived area and has been for quite a, a while. So... Whilst this investment's going on in the region and whilst there's obviously a lot of positivity generated from it, um, it I think it's obviously going to be difficult for people to square off, you know, uh, that, that immediate improvement in, in, in the life in, in the region with what's actually happening thousands of miles away. Um, so I suppose the question I'm asking really is, is you know, what, what do you see, what do you actually see this sports washing entailing in terms of, of what they do? Sure. So it's it's really about constructing a different narrative about Saudi Arabia. So rather than the conversations that people are having about Saudi as being negative about the things I've just talked about, so about indiscriminate bombing, about the death penalty, about the fact that you can get a death penalty just for being gay in Saudi Arabia, the conversation starts to be about Saudi Arabia as a benefactor, Saudi Arabia as uh, a great place to go to sport, Saudi Arabia a bringer of uh, bring, bringing success to uh, a club like Newcastle. In terms of sports washing, what the, this process does is it goes it goes a long, long way beyond Newcastle. So while Newcastle is the club that Saudi Arabia are looking to acquire, this process is, you know, is, is Newcastle is just one part of it. So the Premier League is the most watched league in the world. It's screened in basically every country anyone can think of. 
So when people are making those associations with Saudi Arabia in the Premier League, they won't necessarily be thinking about the money that's going into into Tyneside and the success that's going there. They'll be thinking about they'll be making that association in the same way that people will with you know now with Man City and their owners, um, and that's that's being viewed in countries all over the world. And people are seeing aha. Um, well, we're seeing what's happened at PSG. We're seeing what's happened at Man City. These these countries can take ownership of the club, and it it creates a different narrative about what that country's all about. And um, so it's not just about it's not just about Newcastle as a city and, and a region. It's about that global perspective that being very closely involved with the Premier League brings. All right. Um, so Kate Allen, your UK director, um, in her letter to the Premier League. Uh, stated the following I'll just quote directly here um, whether or not this deal goes ahead we're calling on Newcastle United staff and fans to familiarise themselves with the dire human rights situation in Saudi Arabia and be prepared to speak out about it um, when Amnesty says fans should be prepared to speak out what exactly would it expect or hope to see um, and you know what does Amnesty I suppose believe Newcastle fans can do to, to help the people for whom it's campaigning Right, exactly. And that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, we've always said that we're not opposed to the deal happening. It genuinely isn't up to us to um, decide who should or shouldn't own a football club, right? What we're doing is we're trying to make the human rights record of Saudi Arabia part of this conversation. And I think we've succeeded in doing that. And the fact that, you know, um, people creating content for fans like yourselves are willing to have this conversation, to hear what Saudi are all about, to consider it, to talk about it in their podcasts on their websites that is breaking the spell of sports washing because you're not you know you're not just saying they're great unequivocally let's wave this through you know by us having this conversation and by others having those conversations it's it's putting human rights in that story and it's it's shining a light on who saudi really are and so that you know all we're saying if all we're asking fans to do is be aware of who these guys are be aware of what this represents um, and you know, talk about it, right? raise each other's awareness, and you know that's as far as we're going. We don't, we're not calling on anyone not to, you know, to boycott or anything like that. We're saying, be aware of what this is about. Have it as part of your conversations. Think and talk about it as fans. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, next question, we kind of answered this, but um, you know, the, uh, one of the questions I got was, has the horse not boiled it yet? Football in twenty twenty is a business, and there are dodgy owners a plenty. Um, what would honestly say to those who say that criticism? If this takeover is simply look at me liberalism. Um, well, I mean, you know, our role as a human rights organisation is to raise human rights concerns, and we've we've done that with um, with UAE and Man City. We've done it with everybody that's gone to participate in sport in Saudi Arabia. Just uh, if you put into Google any of those sports plus Amnesty plus sports washing, when it comes to Saudi. We've had something to say. We did a lot of work around the Anthony Joshua fight, for example. We've had similar things to say about Qatar, both in terms of their involvement with PSG, but also the World Cup. Um, so, you know, Newcastle fans are getting this criticism or they're hearing this criticism now because this deal is going through mm. now. And we're, we're trying to make sure that the Premier League are aware that we see this as, as sports washing and that we see it as something which we want them to look carefully at. Yeah. Um... Has Amnesty ever had any dialogue um, it could deem positive directly with the Saudi government of via intermediaries? Or is it, as you, you said earlier on, the, um, there isn't any sort of civil society, I think you said? 
No, so, we're, so uh, Amnesty is is, uh, is banned from Saudi Arabia, as we are from a few countries in the world. Um, and as far as I know, we've never had any positive dialogue with the Saudis in any in any forum. Okay, so I mean, the, the last question was actually, uh, as an organisation, what uh, progress has been made in terms of Saudi Arabia because of pressure put on, on the regime by, by governments of other countries and or NGOs and pressure groups such as Amnesty? I think I've got a feeling um, what you're going to say here. Well, it's, you know, you know, Saudi Arabia are a very rich country. They do a lot of business with governments all over the world. So criticism is unfortunately not as forthcoming as we'd like it to be. We, you know, and as, as Amnesty International, we've documented so many human rights violations there that we wouldn't countenance with any other government. Um, but because of their, you know, their, their for, for whatever reason, their economic power, whatever it might be, governments tend not to be particularly critical now we have seen some criticism um canadian government and the french government have have criticized some of what the saudis have done so uh, for example one of the big reforms or, or touted reforms in saudi arabia is that women have recently been given the right to drive um well amnesty has been working on the cases of uh, a group of women who were calling for that right before it was made legal um three of whom were arrested um and tortured in detention and are now facing huge prison sentences for, for calling for the right to drive. So when that was taking place, there were some governments who were speaking out against Saudi Arabia, but criticism doesn't tend to be particularly forthcoming of them. Can I just confirm, these are, and I just have to do this for, um, you know, for purposes of this podcast, are these alleged or confirmed um, crimes that you've mentioned? The well, So we wouldn't consider them crimes, um, but they have been... There's no. It's not that these. It's not that these are alleged. They have been. Doc, they've been documented. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, th- thanks very much, Felix. We really appreciate you um, giving us uh, a bit of your time. I know you're incredibly busy. So, so thank you for um, putting that side across. It's hugely appreciated, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. And you know, this is it's what it's all. All we're really trying to do is have these, make sure these conversations are being had, um, and that people know, yeah, what's going on over there, what they're, what they're all about. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.